You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my outstanding podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking about sales effectiveness, win rates, and why elements of a differentiated buying experience are the most important factors that influence a buyer's choice of vendor. And to help us out with these topics today, we have Andy Paul, someone I have followed for years, actually, Andy, and an expert in these subjects, host of the Win the Rate podcast, author of Zero Time Selling, 10 Essential Steps to Accelerate Every Company's Sales, Amp Up Your Sales, and his new book, Sell Without Selling Out. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Lisa. I'm Carlos. Happy to be here. Awesome. All right. Before we get started on today's topic, we always like to ask a fun question so people get to know you a little bit better, Andy. Okay. What is something that you're passionate about that those that only know you through business might be surprised to know about you? (laughs) I don't know. I think people, I'm pretty open book on a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big soccer fan. Oh, okay. Yeah, Liverpool. But I do, I write about that. I bring that into my writing quite a bit because I think a lot of lessons we can learn from how professional Elite professional sports teams are managed that we could we could bring into sales, but yeah, yeah, no, I'm a fanatic about soccer. So, yeah, I got into that years ago, but you know, there's been a boom in the U.S. over the last you know 10, 15 years in terms of the availability of being able to watch you know the elite European leagues and so on. So, yeah, my Saturday morning is sort of if Liverpool's playing, I'm watching. Are you a Ted Lasso fan, Andy? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that has that to me. Yeah, transcends soccer, football, whatever. I mean, it's you think about it because I've watched it many times, <laughs> and because there's just so many lessons there, just about the value of just being a good human being, right? Totally. That that transcend the topic, and I think it was something we needed at the time. Certainly, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and the, the election cycle, it was like, oh, you know, we all sort of relaxed because it's like. Yeah, we can be real again. We can be authentic. We can be human. And I think that's why it resonated with so many people. Absolutely. My Well, the listeners probably can't see right now, but I have a, a little sign behind me. Right now it says action beats anxiety. But for a long time, it said, be curious, not judgmental. That's right. Based on that episode of Ted Lasso. So, <laughs> Well, which are great advice, great advice for sellers, right? I When I saw it on Ted Lasso, I'm sort of familiar with the quote. I forget exactly whose quote it is. Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, that's right. And but I looked it up as a result of that because and it's like, oh yeah, that's such a you know think about sellers going into a situation where so often these days they assume they know what the buyer is going to say, right? Because they've been trained to assume they know what the buyer is going to say, right? Because we're going to ask these same ten questions we've asked everybody else, and I sort of know the answer I'm going to get, and it's like. Yeah, you do that. You've shut yourself off to the information and to be able to connect with this person at a level that's going to differentiate you from somebody else. Absolutely. I work with a lot of SDRs and uh, SDR teams. And I often said, even throughout my career, like interviewing people, I'd say, you know, you really need to tap into genuine curiosity because otherwise this will burn you out. Like this is a grind, this job. And if you're not genuinely curious about how these companies go to market or like how your prospects operate, then it is just boring research and you're going to burn it a lot faster. 
oh, it's boring work. I'm always <laughs> sort of amused when I yeah, spend a lot of time on LinkedIn looking at the content that's available for sales. And yeah, multiple times a day, one of the posts I see that has the highest level of engagement is something about, here's the script for connecting with a buyer. Here's the script that's, you know, I've, and it's like, I think back to myself and I've been doing this for a really long time. And you've been at the forefront of every technological revolution in the last 40 plus years and ways of selling. And I go, how did I do it, right? Because I've sold the better part of a billion dollars in large systems and well, I actually started selling women's shoes back in the day. But it's like, I just showed up, right? I mean, I didn't have a script because I was interested, to your point, I was interested in the person I was going to be talking with. And I wasn't interested in why they were the same as everybody else. I was always curious as to why they were different. You know, what was unique about them? What was I going to learn about this individual? Because that's what kept the job interesting, right? If I just turned it into assembly line work where I'm just going to ask the same questions, it's like, but yet that's what people want. They want that silver bullet. Yeah, I'm going to flock because this is a recipe. And, And the fact is, my firmly held belief is, I'll call it a fact, but it's my firmly held belief, is, yeah, there's... A million salespeople in the world, there's a million unique ways to sell. And you are necessarily going to be different than everybody else. So find your path and don't flock to doing the same thing that everybody else is trying to do. Because what the buyer hears is, oh my God, you're just the same as everybody else, right? There's this great stat in the book, <laughs> and I'm missing on the name, it was written by Jennifer Colosimo and some others from the Franklin Covey organization. Significantly different selling. Anyway, something like that. And uh, it came out a couple of years ago. But one of the, I think it was from this book, if not it's another one, but it was that 46% of buyers, be decision makers, consider salespeople indistinguishable from each other. Wow. Right? So basically, half of the people you're talking to in the B2B world, and this was based on a survey of yeah, 10,000 plus businesses around the world, most of them think you're just the same as everybody else. And so... Yeah, sure. Go get some tips and ideas from these people that are writing about these things. Very flocking to this advice. It's just turning into a carbon copy of somebody else. You don't stand out. That experience you're creating for the buyer is going to be completely undifferentiated. This is you know going to take place as we move into the AI world, where more of the tools we're using are formed by AI. And my experience with it so far has been the experience of many people. But it's you know we're just getting started in this. But I think what's going to lead to is more undifferentiated buying experiences for the buyers and actually creates a great opportunity for the human seller. If you're willing to show up to your point, Lisa, with this, you know, give free reign to your curiosity and lean into it because that's what makes the job interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we dive into differentiation, because that is a big topic for today, take us back to selling women's shoes. Tell us about Andy Paul and your story. (laughs) (laughs) I was in high school. That was my first real sales wow. job was in high school selling at women's shoes at JCPenney. Amazing. And yeah, back when JCPenney were the anchor tenants of the malls that were booming, starting to build up around the North America. And yeah, I started right before Christmas. So I was a Christmas fill-in. So I did it for four months or something like that around the winter time. But I just remember my first day on the job, yeah, I'd show up and you know, the boss of the department shows me how to use the foot measuring device, the Brannock device, the you know, ubiquitous device we've all stepped down to. And promise he's going to make me an expert in selling women's shoes in about 15 minutes. <laughs> but the thing on that day, and you'll appreciate this, Frank, from Canada, is it was like the week before Thanksgiving and the skies opened up and there was a huge blizzard. 
And so my first day on a Saturday is <laughs> storm coming down, snow falling, falling. And I was like the bat signal for women within 35 miles of the store and come get their new winter boots. And so, yeah, I was thrown to the deep end of the pool that day. And as a 16-year-old boy that was having to help women zip up their boots and as I said, sort of delicately shove the calves in so you could zip them up. It was quite a learning experience. I imagine, and and quite an evolution from there to where you are today. So how <laughs> yeah. has the evolution of Andy Paul, andypaul.com, and all the things that you're doing today, how has that come about? I'm just like a lot of people. I think I was just an unlikely salesperson, right? <laughs> I graduated college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And at the time... <laughs> after I'd spent a few months after graduation, my parents were nicely paid for this expensive education. I had no plan. I got motivated by the <laughs> desire not to live in my car to go to the career placement center on campus and look for jobs. And the ones that seemed to be most available were the big tech companies today, IBM, Xerox, Burroughs, I ended up working for, which times the second largest computer company in the world, hiring people for their sales training programs. And of course, they cleverly didn't call them sales. They called them marketing management training programs, which sounded a lot more interesting to me than sales. But yeah, got swept up. Big companies did. They would hire hundreds and thousands of, of new college grads and run them through these, you know, I had, gosh, what, 10 weeks of classroom training my first year on the job, which, you know, where's that happen these days unless you're in a really big company? And then they weeded you out based on sink or swim at that point. And so I was selling computer systems. They called mini computers, but they filled rooms with equipment and some mainframe computers and moved into management. And then kind of started in the early 80s, it was a long time ago. I kept, I, this happened more than once, but the story was you know, I had a salesperson that worked for me. We we're going to go down and close this guy is a big deal. It was, gosh, at the time it was about a $60,000 deal. In today's dollars, like quarter million dollars for a good-sized computer system, and I talked to the CEO, the business owner, the day before myself to confirm that we're all set, no difficulties with the contract, going to go. <laughs> Show up to the guy's office. <laughs> he says, gosh, I'm sorry, we're just not going to be able to do this. And I sort of, <laughs> salesperson was crestfallen. I'm sort of confused because I talked to the guy the night before, or the evening before. And he said, yeah, last night after I talked to you, I went to a local computer store, and he turned around and pointed to this Apple II sitting on the desk behind him. They didn't even have disk drives at that point. And he said, and he says, computer sales said, this can do everything your $60,000 computer can do. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, we lost the sale, even though there was no convincing the guy that, you know, it wasn't the same. But this happened to me a couple of times. So I, yeah, picked up phone and called a friend of mine that was working at Apple and <laughs> went to work for Apple. <laughs> so figured that was the best approach. So just working a number of startups and, Ultimately, got back into, I was doing channel sales for a while, got back into selling large systems, basically satellite communication systems. And did that for 15 years, traveling the world, selling to customers every continent but Antarctica. And got to a point where I decided I wanted to get off the road and start my own company back in the year 2000. But doing that, working with companies of various sizes since then to help them improve their sales productivity. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing background from stuffing calves in the boots yeah. to selling major computer systems. <laughs> to writing multiple books and helping companies be more sales effective. Yeah, and recording over 1,200 podcast episodes. So yeah. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And selling the podcast. Yeah, lots of things happen. Wow. Yeah, we just cracked 280, so <laughs> you've got us largely beat. 
and I've started a new one. So yeah. Yeah. Well, podcasting's fun. I mean, it's, you get a chance to talk to really interesting people and to your point earlier about curiosity, right? I mean, I'm always sort of surprised when I, cause I've been on, I don't know, probably 200 sales podcasts as a guest and some are really excellent and some <laughs> the hosts betray a complete lack of curiosity, which is, it's like, yeah, okay. This one's the way they were salespeople then. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll uh, land on the former statement. Somewhere in the middle. At least we're going to try to have some fun. So let's talk about sales effectiveness. Sure. So in my life, communication's always been my biggest challenge, which may be the reason I've been divorced twice. So before we get into the topic, Andy, what do you mean by sales effectiveness? Because it's a hot topic. But it comes off people's tongues like butter. But I really, can you peel it back a little bit? What do you mean by it? Sure. Well, ultimately, what I mean is it boils down to win rates. And so it's funny. It's one of these topics that just, especially in the tech world, they pay so little attention to. And it's, it's sort of shocking because certainly in the software world and other parts of tech in the last 20 years, it's really been all been about the top of the funnel. You know, we get enough crap into the top of the funnel. And if we're just decent at what we do, we'll close a certain percentage of them and a certain low percentage of them. But that's okay, because as long as we're really good at top of funnel, we can sort of hit our growth targets. And you always know that that's not a system that can last. It's only going to work. The company, the only companies it's really worked for in the last 20 years are companies that are going to succeed anyway, because they had the right product at the right time. And yeah, my belief is it has not served most companies well. But unfortunately, sort of that ethos has also gone outside tech and seen companies, just more conventional industries, even sort of suffering the same thing because they thought, yeah, everybody's talking about these tools we need to use. And, you know, they give us the ability to carpet bomb our prospects with, you know, tons of emails, blah, 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 blah. So we've seen it play out. And what happened is you see in the, you know, again, this book, Strikingly Different Selling, that had a commission some research into win rates. And this was published 2021 or early 2022 is from surveying, I think it was 15,000 companies around the world, B2B enterprises, average win rates, 17%. Yeah. 17%. Now, the caveat is those are in deals over $100,000, but these days $100,000 is nothing, right? So that irritates people when I say that. <laughs> but it's not, right? I mean, so how do we get to this point? Where it's acceptable to have win rates that low. And in fact, is people aren't paying attention to it. And so there's start at the top is, well, to reach this point is that, yeah, people are just worried about <laughs> volume. They're not worried about, hey, if I have an opportunity, what do I do to make sure that I increase my probability of winning that opportunity? If I'm going to make the decision to invest my time and my attention and my efforts, resources into this deal, shouldn't I want to have a pretty high probability of winning it? And we just seem to have gotten away from that. I mean, I, I run these training programs called Buyer Experience Bootcamp, and we're helping IEs learn how to show up differently to create these differentiated buying experiences. And 90% of the sellers that show up don't know their win rates as individuals. I mean, this was the metric I grew up on throughout my career, was my win rate. And I had my friend Dave Brock, and if you know Dave, you know, great sales expert, talking about when he was at IBM and managing teams, you had to have a 35% win rate just to keep your job, right? Otherwise, you, and I had the same similar thing as I had people that didn't have win rates above 30% or 35%. They weren't going to be a fit for us. Maybe they'd be a fit in some other situation, but they weren't going to be a fit for us. Because oftentimes I was selling in businesses where, in industries where maybe we had 500 prospects in the world. 
right? So we had an opportunity. We had to win it, right? We had to be confident that we had an opportunity to win it. We had to know the reason why we had to ask the opportunity to win it. It just, as I said, it's just a mindset that seemed to have escaped out of sales. And so that's what we focus on. So effectiveness is, look, I'm going to do a better job of making sure the opportunities that come into my pipeline are there for a reason. Not because they've raised their hands, that somebody talked to me, but the reason is we've identified a reason why we think we can win this deal. Otherwise, we're just not going to work with it. And it could be somebody else's opportunity. So we want to yield a higher win rate from the opportunities we work on. And then as we get smarter at that, then we can say, okay, let's work with marketing and let's make sure we're targeting the people, more of the people, the type that we're, we're closing. But I mean, you look at sort of the vicious cycle that exists as, you know, if you're an organization, this is not unusual. You know, it's one company we're working with, fast-growing, well-known name in SaaS, win rates below 20% for the history of the company. And, you know, and they're encountering the headwinds of the fact they know that they need to be more effective in what they do. And they need to be, have a higher yield off the opportunities. But they just sort of let anything into the pipeline. And when you do that, it's extremely hard to, to really focus on, hey, how can I create an experience for the buyer as they go through making the decision that sets me apart from somebody else? Because if I'm being measured on the fact that I have 5x pipeline coverage or 7x pipeline coverage, you sometimes see, I really don't have time as a seller because I'm juggling so many opportunities. How can I do a good job on any one of them? Right. And what we found, the answer is they can't and they don't. And you know, the most recent data from Gartner in the spring was of so this year was, you know, that if you saw their chart, you know, the survey of B2B buyers, the nine most important factors influencing the choice of a vendor. I'd take that chart and I, I presented it to sales teams. I said, so just take a second, look at this chart. Here are the nine reasons the buyer said most important factors that influence their choice of a vendor. What's missing? You know, you get the silence for 10, 15 seconds. Finally, somebody pipes up. Product's not on the list. Yeah, what else isn't on the list? Price isn't on the list. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not they're unimportant, but they're table stakes. A competitive product at a competitive price is table stakes. Now, what are they basing their decision on? Well, number one factor on the list, trustworthiness. Number two, flexibility, adaptability. Could you as a seller adapt the way you sell to be able to sell the way the buyer is gathering and processing their information? There's been other research company out of Australia, called Trinity Perspectives, run by a gentleman, Kean McLaughlin. Been doing win-loss analysis for 12, 13, 14 years now. Companies around the world. A year ago, he published a list of the nine reasons why you win deals, nine reasons why you lose deals, based on summarizing all everything they found out through all these interviews. Same thing. No product, no price. That's all. Everything was about the buyer's experience with the seller. Because, you know, products are all alike. I mean, if you're out buying a conversational intelligence package, how many are there? You want to go count how many companies offer that? It's in over 40. And the mind side, the buyer, they all do the same things. So, yeah, if you're really focused on how, how can I increase my win rates, it's not going to be about adding a feature to your product or it's not going to be about lowering your price because everybody can do that. No, it's how are you helping this buyer who's interested in making a change in their business how can you help them make that decision to make that change? Okay. So, woof. all right. That's my rant. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, heavy. 
<laughs> no, that's great. And honestly, you've written three best-selling books now, and I know you're working on your next one. So you touched on it a little bit in your self-described rant. But like when we think about how sales teams are coached to hard, hard sell, what are like the main drawbacks of that now? Because you touched on trustworthiness. It, are we losing people based on how we're being trained to sell? Like Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we lose people. We're losing customers and we're losing people out of the profession. And I think the Gartner chart really highlights sort of this, this dichotomy, perhaps, or paradox, perhaps, is that we are training sellers to sell products and the buyers are choosing vendors. So just start there. Right. We're, we're teaching people to go out and learn how to sell this product. But the buyer is choosing a vendor. They're choosing somebody that can help them achieve you know, some desired business outcomes by making a change in their business. They don't care about your product. I mean, they really don't. Yeah, I have encouraged sellers to think about what buyers go through in sort of three, not three stages, but three tasks that they have to accomplish. And the first task is what I call the what task. What are we trying to do? What's our problem? And what are we trying to achieve? And yeah, I think one of the big disservices we've done to sellers is this idea that Oh, buyers are you know, 80% of the way through their buying process where they talk to sellers for the first time. And I have to admit, I sort of bought into that at one point. But the more you think about it, the more you think, well, that's just crazy, right? Because sure, maybe it's a transactional sale. I'm buying paper clips. I don't need a salesperson. But if you're in something with any sort of complexity, what the buyer is looking for the seller to do is to help them understand the scope of the problem they have based on the experience expertise and also help them think about what can we achieve by addressing, by addressing and solving this problem? So if you think that they're 80% of the way through, then you think, well, they know that already. Thus, I'm going to sell you my product because you've got to figure out what you want, right? You're asking me about it. And we set the situation up by just not understanding, refusing to understand what the buyers are going through. So I like to say sellers, when buyers are sort of going through this phase of job or task, if you will, saying, look, we're trying to figure out what we're trying to do. If you're talking about your product, you're out. Because this isn't is about products, it's about ideas at that point in time. So Andy, I guess like double clicking in on that, because you talked a little bit about being a vendor. And Carlos and I often coach people that we actually don't even want to be a vendor. We want to be a trusted expert partner, right? Like we don't want to be seen as transactional. We want people calling us, asking us questions about things we don't even do because they just want our advice. Like, And so yeah. how do you coach people to make that shift from selling product like to genuinely being interested in the business and setting themselves up as that expert, that trusted expert? Yeah, it's hard, right? Yeah. It is hard because there's so much that exists that, excuse me, that pushes sellers toward this idea of pushing a product. And a story I love to tell is a woman, Don Dieter Schmelz, who runs a professional selling program at Kansas State University, talks about when she teaches her first year students professional selling, intro professional selling course, and they do role playing. She said the, the students are all revert to being default to being super salesy. Yeah. Because this is what people think sellers are. So we have to sort of try to change that mindset somewhat. But I think for people coming, it's this idea of it's okay to be curious, right? And I think we train curiosity out of salespeople who are saying, look, here's our playbook, here's our process, do this, do that. And sure, there's value in process, there's value in frameworks. But if you, again, you look at, at least in the tech world, in the SaaS world, do those really work? You can't make an argument that any of those processes work because they're yielding win rates 20% or even 30%. And that's horrible. So my book, Sellers Not Selling Out, was trying to give sellers permission to say, look, that doesn't work. 
you have permission to be yourself. And I think people are inherently curious, and I think it gets trained out of them. And so we have to sort of encourage people to say, look, if I show up, I'm really sincerely interested in the buyer. I just look at my own career. In my first sales job, I said I was you know, selling computer systems. I was selling to CEOs. I was focused on the construction industry in the Bay Area. The East Bay Area was my territory. I was 21. I looked 15, 16, maybe. <laughs> I knew nothing about business to speak of. And yet, I'd go in and talk to these CEOs, and they'd give me time. And they did because, not because I was <laughs> showing up and dazzling with what I knew, but because I was sincerely interested and curious about what they were interested in, what they were trying to accomplish with their business. And for me, this was just an yeah, incredible life lesson and learning experience for sales was, yeah, just show up and be yourself and be curious and people will reciprocate. And we try to make it more complicated and it's just not. So true. I mean, so many companies, and they, they love to use the word, I have a lot of pet peeves, Andy. One of them is the yeah. word <laughs> pitch, because that's what we, a lot of people teach them. Like, okay, so you have complete disregard for who they are, what situation they're in, and you're going to regurgitate this canned response, and it's exactly what it's going to sound like. Oh, yeah. Why don't you earn the right to talk about it by understanding them a little bit better? Exactly. And I think it's also a mental game in ourselves. If mindset matters in sales... You telling yourself that now I'm going to pitch them puts you in the wrong mindset. Yeah, well, I, I draw a more distinct difference along the same lines what you're talking about, which is you can sell them or you can help them. Yeah. And as a seller, if you show up with the mindset that I'm here to help, then you're going to have follow a different set of actions, right? In Sell Without Selling Out, I said there's really four human skills you need to master to succeed in sales. One is connection. The ability to just connect with another human being. Once you connect, then that gives you permission to use your curiosity, right? You start building some credibility and trust, and then you earn the right to ask the questions you need to ask to really understand what's going on with the buyer. You earn the right to get the answers. Third skill is understanding, right? There's so much we look at what passes for discovery and the way we train sellers to do discovery. It's just about gathering information. But the information lacking context means nothing. It gives you no ammunition to be able to really understand the buyer and help them identify what's really important in their lives that they should want to achieve. So the third skill is understanding. The fourth skill is generosity, which is, you know, how do we help people, our buyers, make this decision to change? And we provide that help. Sure, we have an agenda. My agenda in sales is always, if I can help you succeed, I'll succeed. And if you lead with that, then your buyers are fine. They're okay. You have that agenda as long as they're first. So it's just connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity. And that leads to how are you helping? And you're right, Carlos. It's like if you pitch before you understand, the buyer turns you off immediately. What value do you have for them? You have none. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to this sales effectiveness measured by win rate for a second. And by the way, Andy, I love your four aspects of it. I'm just trying to be cautious of my time or or else I'm going to send myself in a rabbit hole. When I think about win rates, though, Hey, and you even, you talked about this a little bit. There's a lot of things that lead up to it. And I think a lot of companies, in an effort to get a bigger pipeline, in an effort because they don't have focus, they go after anything that moves. So they don't have a clear understanding of an ideal customer profile they should be going after, which then kind of feeds into the going after a bunch of leads that probably are not qualified. And they don't ask the questions to qualify. So it all leads into affecting that win rate at the end. I'm curious, this isn't even talking about tools yet. What do you think 
are some of the key factors organizations really need to pay attention to first to really drive better win rate? Well, there's several. Let's start at the top. What's your criteria for accepting someone into your pipeline? I mean, let's start there. I mean, I, in my first book, I painted the image for sellers and said, you need to consider yourself like the bouncer at the head of the velvet rope at the missions to a club, right? Not everybody gets into your club. Your club is who you're going to sell to. You as a seller have to make that choice. And I think so many sellers have abdicated making that choice because they feel this pressure to have this pipeline coverage. And it's this vicious cycle because managers saying, well, I don't trust you to win anything. Thus, you need more pipeline. But sellers aren't getting the tools and the coaching they need and the just the management to show them how they can win a higher fraction of the deals and whether, where it starts. So first, you have to be more discriminating about who you sell to. And then, then I says, you think about it. If you're in a, an organization that, that has low win rates and marketing is counting on sales to provide feedback about who they should be selling to and who they should be marketing to and in order to build more pipeline, you're going to have flawed information coming back because what do low win rate sellers know about their customers? Not very much. So at some point, you have to break the cycle and say, look, we're going to focus on being very discriminating about who's coming into our pipeline, understanding why we think we have an opportunity to win them. And this is the part I see missing so often when I work with teams and sellers. It's like, well, we're working on this opportunity. Well, sure, but why? Well, they said they wanted to buy this. Great, but why you? What do you know that says we have a unique opportunity to win this deal? Well, we've got a No, it's not yet a product, doesn't. <laughs> why? So you have to use your curiosity as we've talked about. Start asking the questions, understand what it is about you and the, what you offer. And the experience you can create yeah, through the buying experience, that, that's going to put you in an advantageous position. And there's so little conscious thought being given to this. Because as a seller, you should be evaluating everything you do through the lens of, does, is this going to increase the probability of me winning this opportunity? Is this providing value to the buyer? Right? Is this helping the buyer make progress through their buying process? If not, why am I taking this step? I know it's in the playbook, but why am I doing it if it's not helping them make progress toward making their decision? And it's, everything just starts feeding on itself. And so we just get in these sort of open loops. We're just doing things that we think we should be doing them as so as doing them because they have value for the buyer, help the buyer make progress toward making their decision. Do you feel that process has changed in the last like five years, Andy, as far as like, I feel like at one point we had trained our buyers to expect a certain selling process. And now you're teeing us up to say the buying process is what really differentiates you as a vendor or partner. So has that change happened in the last five years? Like, what have you seen? No, I think buyers have always been concerned about this. I think that, again, we went through this, especially, again, if we pay attention to, I don't want to pay undue attention to software world, but they tend to influence so many other factors. But buyers took advantage of it. So, I mean, it sort of worked to their benefit. They were frustrated. But, I mean, you see the results in the Gardner study, 75% of buyers don't want to talk to salespeople anymore. Well, why is that? I mean, Dr. Stephen Timmy wrote this book, I forget the name of the book, but as his did his research, you know, 77% of C-level decision makers, you know, find no value in the conversation with sellers. You know, we talked about the, the indistinguishable sellers, Gardner did a similar study. That's like, yeah, the buyers aren't getting anything from it because people are showing up and to your point, Carlos, they're pitching instead of using curiosity to try to understand, have these conversations and just be vulnerable even for a second to admit they don't know anything and said, no, let me keep pitching. Yeah, I don't think it's gotten any better. I think it's hasn't improved, maybe hasn't gotten worse, but it's, yeah, I think we're sort of in a dire state when you have that high a percentage of your potential prospects saying, yeah, we're just getting nothing out of these interactions with sellers. And the thing, and this is perhaps my perspective, I, don't, I think I'm right on this, is that 
my experience has been is that it's, yeah, I would dispute Gardner. They say 75% of buyers don't want to talk to sellers. Actually, I think the number is 100% of buyers don't want to talk to sellers. <laughs> but the self-aware ones know they need to, right? Because self-aware ones know that there's things, the questions they don't know to ask themselves, right? And if they're making something that's a serious change in their business that this purchase represents, don't they want to make a good decision? Sure. How do I do that? Well, I need to talk to somebody that can help me with that. The salesperson. So uh, buyers many times need to talk to sellers, but that's where we have this gap in effectiveness is, yeah, how are those conversations taking place? And it's just us talking or are we actually asking questions and really trying to understand what's most important to the buyer and how do we help them get that? Yeah, if I could jump in there a second. One of the things you've been working on a lot, it just seems to be more prevalent now in the last, I don't know, three to five years, is companies are willing to rethink their sales process, stages, whatever you want to call it, from a buyer's perspective. So instead of, hey, now we negotiate the contract, hey, let's think about them going through their buying process and how we help facilitate that activity. What information do we need and what information do they need? And how do we help facilitate? And by the way, when we don't have this information, we probably shouldn't think that it's at a stage when it isn't. Because sooner or later, yeah, the person you're talking to might love you from, a, let's say, a technical perspective. But when they go to that higher level decision maker to go to, and they get the, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it now? Why are we doing it with these guys? And there's no real response back from your coach or champion within the deal. You're dead in the water. And I like your idea of probability. I use it a lot. Yeah. Hey, we're doing this. We're going the extra mile to improve our probability of a, a positive result. Well, I think to your point, though, it's, I think it'd really be good if sales got rid of this idea of stages. Because I don't think stages exist for buyers, right? So, again, I think buyers have three jobs. I, start talking, I call it the what, the how, and the who. What's our problem? What are the outcomes we want to achieve by addressing the problem? How can we achieve that? How can we do, how can we achieve our how? Or our what, excuse me. The third one is who are we going to do that with? And they're working all three simultaneously. What happens though is at one point in time, the what is going to consume more of their time and attention, right? And once they start figuring that, doesn't mean they've stopped thinking about looking at products or thinking about vendors. It doesn't have as much of their attention. And then they move on to, now we're going to evaluate how we're going to get this done. Doesn't mean we've forgotten about our problems because we may learn something new that gives us new insight into our problems and so on. So it's not like that goes away. But when you have the stage-based process, this always drives me nuts is, is what's our exit criteria for discovery? That's like you get an order, right? You're discovering up until the time you get an order. I mean, if you've shut that off and you're competing against me, you're going to lose because we kept helping make sure the buyer learned things as we go through and they learned something about themselves. We kept asking questions and we kept synthesizing what they're telling us and asking more questions. And, you know, the buyers aren't in a static situation. They don't suddenly, oh, that's it. You know, we've stopped. You know, we're not evolving. We're not learning. It's not, you know, that's not the way it works. So we need to get rid of those stages because they're meaningless to the buyers. So if they're meaningless to the buyers, what value do they have to us as sellers? Because they're artificial. Interesting. Now we're going to have legions of people eliminating their sales stages after this podcast, Andy. Well, but they need to find a way. Think about it. It's, is if you're a yeah. sales manager and you're talking to your seller and you're trying to understand where the buyer is, the buyer is not in discovery. The buyer is not in qualification. The buyer is not in demo. Whatever your stage is and how you describe it, they're not there. They've got their own way of looking at it. So that's why I was trying to, with this idea of this, you know, what, how, who, is just simplify it and say, yeah, have they defined their problem, right? Do they have a vision of what it's going to be like? 
what success will look like in making this change in their business? They do. Great. Well, we're probably going to do our conventional discovery and qualification during as part of doing that. But now we understand where the buyer is. And this is, I think, just a huge gap we still have. And still, sellers and managers can talk about the deals in the context of the way the buyers look at them. We're always going to have be misaligned, let's say. Absolutely. And in what Carlos and I do, we coach to what we call the qualified prospect formula, which is a vision match differentiated, which is simply understanding what is the business objective that is imperative for them to complete or overcome in a period of time? What are the problems standing in the way of them getting there? How do they envision the solution? Is the solution differentiated in their mind? What's the impact of solving those problems to them and the business? Who needs to be involved and what are the steps we need to take? And that translates on both sides because as a buyer throughout my career, and I'm sure, not I'm sure I know you've been the same, is like when you have to bring in technology or whatever for your teams in your career, you go through the same psychological process. Like I have something I need to achieve. There's things standing in the way of me doing that. I have a vision of the solution. Is this person differentiated? What's the impact? Who needs to be involved? And what's the plan? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the same on both sides. So why not boil it down to those elements? Yeah. Well, but there's a friend of mine calls it, you know, the sales training industrial complex, right? It's people that, of which we're sort of part of in some regards, but have this vested interest in, in keeping things complicated. I look on like LinkedIn and other places and I'll see some consultant, you know, thought leader post this thing. Well, here's, you know, here's our architecture for what you do and all these touch points and so on. It's like, <laughs> why? It's sure. It's sort of like this, you know, people going overboard these days on multi-threading, which is no, they're just saying you talk to the people who are involved in making a decision, right? It's like, it's people discovering something new. It's like, no, it's just common sense, right? To your point, who's going to be involved? Who has a stake? As I like to say is, in every deal I've worked in is, is over my career, is what I learned pretty early on was there's always one thing that's more important than everything else. Mm-hmm. And if you can find out what that is and understand what that is, and then once you do that, find out who it's most important to, Yeah, it's yours. You're ahead of the pack. You're ahead of the pack. 100%. There's always one thing. doesn't mean there's lots of things, but there's always one thing. Find the one thing. And you find out who it's most important to. Again, we've got, I think, again, we've served ill-served sellers by thinking that and training people, it's all decision-making, it's all consensus-based these days. And it's like, A, it's not new. Companies have always had large numbers of people involved in complex decisions. But when you get people in a group of stakeholders, there's always one or two people who are more dominant from a personality standpoint. You know, you get 12 people together to be a jury of their peers, right? Somebody stands out, somebody dominates. Find out who that is. Right? They may not be the person with the title, but they're the one that's driving the ship. Find out who that is, because clearly something's really important to them. So true. Instead of just following the playbook and let's make sure we talk to everybody. I'll show you talk to everybody, but you don't talk to them all the same way. Find out. Yeah. So yeah, it's it requires sellers, I think sort of summing up a lot of what we talked about is just understand that every situation's different. A, they're different than everybody else. They can't be like everybody else. They need to be the best version of themselves. And the situations I go into, everyone is unique. And appreciating the uniqueness and identifying the uniqueness instead of taking comfort and saying, well, how are they the same as everybody else? I always approach life as I say, well, how are these people different than everybody else? Because in the difference was the opportunity. Absolutely. And it's much more interesting. (laughs) I mean, how do you stay engaged in sales, right? It's over a long career. If you're just being this mechanized automaton, yeah, you're not going to stay in the profession long because it's not going to be fulfilling. No. 
But if you get a chance to meet interesting people and learn about their businesses and be really curious about it, that's what's kept me going for years. I love that part. Same reason I love doing podcasts. You know, did 1,200 episodes, interviewed a bunch of repeat guests, but interviewed more than 900 really interesting people. Yeah. So that's what keeps you going. And so for sales, find that. Yeah. And if you take that level of interest and that curiosity, and I said, you're discriminating about who you're actually investing your time in, you're going to have success and you'll want to keep doing it. And on that note, we got to change direction a little bit because I feel like we could go on all day long and we would probably touch on a lot of really interesting subjects. (laughs) Get me wound up and yeah. (laughs) Well, because we all are genuinely curious, we could probably carry on for days. (laughs) So Andy, we've got a couple of questions we ask everyone at the end of every podcast. And one of them is as a revenue executive throughout your career, you have been a target for sales professionals. So when it comes to cold outreach, like there's no referral, there's no introduction, somebody is reaching out to you, what could they do to actually earn a piece of your attention and maybe even get a response from you? Show that they've done their research. I mean, I <laughs> I got one today that <laughs> is, uh, the guy says, yes, I, I reached out to you last month about this. Not sure if you're still interested, but we're still helping restaurants like yours oh. increase the revenue. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> Can we visit your restaurant, Andy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I had you know, another one for somebody today that's you know, reaching out. So I get inundated with marketing and sales type stuff. And but they clearly had listened to at least a part of a podcast of mine. They had the name of the podcast right. I mean, there's <laughs> just a few little clues. They had spent maybe an extra 30 seconds or a minute on it. But that's all it takes, right? It doesn't take 20 minutes for every email that you're, it's just show up authentically, be human, show you've done your research, a little bit of preparation, you're trying to connect. And yeah, that catches my attention. It's so easy. And it's so easy. It's just painful, as you guys, I'm sure, experience all the time. It's just painful. Yeah, the, my favorite of all time is you know, a couple of years ago, somebody reached out to me and said, yeah, I've been looking at your LinkedIn profile. And I think you'd be an ideal candidate to start a podcast. Mm. Now, at that time, well over a thousand episodes I'd produced. <laughs> and it's all over my LinkedIn profile. And I, usually I don't respond, but I couldn't help. I said, yeah, I have to respond to this. So I said, you know, dude... <laughs> You say you're on my LinkedIn profile, so clearly you see that <laughs> I have a podcast. I've had a podcast for seven years, you know, a thousand episodes. Don't you do research? You're on the platform. And so he responded, he said, yeah, we don't have time for that. Uh-huh. Right. There's a great example of people just trying to run a, a numbers game. Yeah. yeah. Right. The more I send out, the more I'll come out the other end. And it sets a negative impression right from the start, Right. Which ruins your, you know, your one thing about trust right from the beginning. First impressions, right? I mean, first impressions are forever. Yeah. And so this, to me, there's this, this lesson I keep telling people about, which is that I think sellers, it's true in the world in general, but it's sellers in particular, is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Just because you can send out a million undifferentiated emails doesn't mean you should, right? I mean, I can cite lots of examples like that, things you can do that the technology enables doesn't mean you should. So I think more yes time I spend in it, that's sort of my perspective of being in sales for 47 years this year, is that it all boils down to the human aspect of it. it the technology, I've been through every major technological revolution there's been practically in the 21st century or 20th and 21st century, personal computer, email, voicemail, things that 
fundamentally were thought to be transformational technologies for sellers that turned out to be technologies that were useful and did transform to some degree. But throughout all these changes, internet gone on and on, it's like, so it gets down to me with you. What happens when I talk to you? What happens when I communicate with you on a human level? And that's not going to be replaced by AI. That's, in fact, probably become even more important, I believe. Right, going forward. In the world of AI, because the AI experiences will be these undifferentiated, I think, sort of lowest common denominator type interactions. And one, of the, there's been some studied as, because AI has been used for medical decision assist systems for a while. And there's been some studies. And I was reading this summary or report on this one study, but I think it was at like Johns Hopkins, where they had this medical decision assist system. What they found is that patients sort of embraced it at first, but then over time sort of stopped embracing it as much. When they asked, what they found is the patient said, well, the thing is, it doesn't really understand the unique situation, right? Is, yes, I may have a disease that 100,000 other people have, but I feel the pain differently. I feel the discomfort differently. And the machine can't understand that. And this is so critical for sellers, right, to think about is, is that, yeah, we've talked to humans that experience what they're going through uniquely. And our ability to use our, get back to our curiosity and our ability to connect to someone at human level and understand what's really their unique perspective on what they're going through, that's, that creates that experience for the buyer that is differentiated. Because if the products and services are largely the same, they think, well, yeah, but Lisa really got it, right? She got me. Lisa's going to win the business. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Andy, if anyone of our listeners wanted to talk to you more about these topics, potentially hire you or learn more about you, where should they go? What's your preferred method of communication and any calls to action for the for the listeners today? Well, <laughs> lots of them. Listen to my podcast as well. This is a great podcast. You can listen to mine, the Win Rate Podcast. Yeah, you can connect with me at, on LinkedIn. Just Andy Paul. I think, I think it's what the usual pre-log plus real Andy Paul, I think, is the unique bit. Or email me at Andy and Andy at AndyPaul.com. Yeah, come visit my website, uh, download a free chapter of my book. Yeah. Perfect. I was just going to say that. I heard a rumor that there's a free chapter of your latest book. So make sure you check that out, folks, and download that. Andy, cannot thank you enough for your time today. We know how valuable it is and really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andy. That does it for this episode, folks. Check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your family, your friends, your kids. Get them off their screens for a little while. And if you like what you hear, please throw us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I'm Lisa Schneer. I'm joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. 